A lot of us have heard of the great um, poet from Japan, Basho. Uh, he was a great haiku master, and uh, he had said that his favorite poet was Saigyo, the one that had really inspired him. Um, Saigyo lived in the 12th century. Saigyo was a hermit poet. So this is a poem from the Mirror for the Moon. He said, Making my way through the whirling rapids of Miyataki River, I have the sense of being washed clean to the base of my heart. Uh, hopefully you are having this experience. <laughs> 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 so have you been in the whirling rapids <laughs> this is the idea that we're getting washed clean but you have to keep going through the rapids uh, and this is something um, that's very very deeply important to understand because in many ways uh, equanimity uh, develops through this process so we often forget that when we come into a retreat, <clears throat> when any of the um, beautiful qualities of mind, like uh, mindfulness or energy, investigation, uh, the joyful interest, the calm, concentration, equanimity, when any of those are present, um, and especially if a few are present, and especially even if it's a few seconds, Never mind longer, uh, but even if a few seconds. This is like washing your mind heart in warm, soapy water. Your body mind heart, uh, it, like being put in this warm, soapy water. And, and uh, we forget that that's part of the process. That actually, if you put <laughs> a dirty cloth in warm, soapy water, you tend to want the dirt to come out, right? Like that's the point, is that you're, you're wanting that to happen, but we don't want it to happen. You know, we just want, we just want the warm soapy water. We don't want the dirt to come out. And it's, this is not anything that we designed. It's how it happens. Whether you're in retreat or not, when these positive beautiful qualities of mind are present, uh, we tend to think, oh, this is what I want. This is why I'm here. And it's true. It's like we want this to happen. But when the energy starts to go down, and you can feel it, you can feel yourself losing it. And if you're having a <laughs> positive experience, you won't want that to go. You don't want it to go. And it's a very bittersweet moment when it starts to go. It's going. It's not your fault. It's impersonal. It's like the weather changed. The energy goes down. And also what happens at that point, and again, that's what I mean by this is not our design. It's how it happens. This layer will be coming up that is something we don't want to see, something we don't want to look at. And it, it can, um, it'll feel like um, we're resisting it because we're wanting this good stuff, right? We're wanting that. We don't want the purification. But that's how you get liberated. You can't get free of um, wanting if you don't go through it. You can't get free of aversion if you don't go through it. The idea is that you're not just, you know, going, okay, I got rid of it. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. Uh, 
and so we have to remind ourselves that going through this purity, purification, this washing machine, we are um, cleaning the heart, mind, body. It's like a purification process. And the more you understand this process, the more equanimity you have with it. But we have to remind ourselves that when that positive um, spiritual experiences are happening, happening and they start to go, of course we want them back. You don't have to yell at yourself or go, I shouldn't want this back. It's more like you say, of course I want this back. Who wouldn't want it back, right? It's not like you wouldn't want it back, but then you realize that it's <coughs> out of your control. So it's that understanding that this is the pro- how the process happens. It's not personal. Uh, and you keep going through that again and again and again until you're fully free. That's how it goes until you're fully free. And once you've tasted a glimpse of when the, these conditions of the seven factors appear or come together, once you've tasted it, this is the pr- process. It'll, it'll uh, come, come together and it falls apart. And it comes together and it falls apart. And this is how equanimity develops because um, you learn not to take it personally. You just keep, you punch in in the morning, you punch out at night. Just punch in the morning, punch out at night. Do the best you can. And the practice starts to do itself. Before the um, Buddha to be uh, became fully awake, uh, when he was a young man, um, it said that um, his father was a king, and his father wanted him to um, inherit the family business, so to speak. Right? He wanted him to become a king, and he didn't. There were a lot of um, uh, prophecies about uh, Siddhartha that he was going to either become a great you know, king or a prince or a great spiritual leader. And his father didn't want the spiritual leader part. So he did everything he could, again, this is the legend, that to prevent him from seeing anybody old, anybody sick, or anybody dead. And there were three palaces that said, uh, one for the different weather conditions. And so he, he built these three palaces so the prince never suffered, you know, much dukkha. And, um, but when he got to be, you know, the teenager, right, the teenager always wants to kind of do what you're not supposed to be doing, um, he, uh, a deva, the guardian angel is said to appear as a charioteer and the uh, Buddha to be talked him into taking him out. And so um, uh, the, the king tried to clean everything up, you know, but he couldn't manage it because the deva conjured up the first time out, he conjured up um, somebody uh, old first time out. And uh, they're going by, and, and the Buddha to be stopped, asked him to stop the charioteer, and said, "What is that?" He'd never seen it. And the charioteer said, "Oh, that's somebody old." And uh, it, you see that sobering, right? And so the, he said, um, "Is that going to happen to me?" And and the charioteer said, "Yes." And the, and then the Buddha to be said, um, "Is that going to happen to everybody?" And the charioteer said yes. And he was so stricken, he went back to the palace. But then, of course, you know, that that teenager energy, he wanted to go out again. And the charioteer (laughs) conjured up someone um, sick and dying. And the same thing happened three times. That, you know, he, like, got stricken just like, is this going to happen to me? And everybody, yes, went back. Third third time, um, somebody did. That was, of course, the most um, sobering and upsetting. And then they uh, went <laughs> one more time, and he saw a renunciate. 
And, and to me, this is one of the most beautiful translations. It said he saw someone more peaceful than peace itself. And I always get goosebumps when I hear that because I think there's something so um, powerful about those words, someone more peaceful than peace itself. Uh, and this is when um, he decided to uh, go on his spiritual quest. He left. He left all of that and uh, started to seek because he understood when he saw this uh, fourth person that um, that was possible for him too, right? He asked, is it possible for me too and, and for everyone? And, and the charioteer said yes. So that story is called The Four Heavenly Messengers. And uh, I think that sometimes we are brought up in, in our culture to have the opposite feeling about those, that they're not heavenly messengers. <clears throat> when I was a child, my mom got very sick, and she died around when I was 13. And uh, I didn't realize that uh, we were going to go to this wake and that there would be an open casket. Uh, and it, uh, this, we sort of got there early, and I kind of roamed into this room, and my mom's body was in this casket, and they had put makeup on her. But, you know, she had been really sick, and she didn't look like this when I saw her last. <laughs> you know, it was like... So that was such a shock. Was the, first, the first shock was just that they tried to make her look, you know, 30 years younger. It, was so, it seemed so stupid. And then I remember this feeling of, like, just that slow movement toward wanting to touch her. And it was very slow, but I, when I touched her, her body was so cold, and it had such a deep impact. Like, it was like um, 100% impact. Like, I was completely changed. And it, it was um, just like this story. I had this wisdom, this understanding that, oh, this is going to happen to me, and this is going to happen to everyone I know. It was so profound. And I wasn't like the other kids after that. You know, I was seeking. I knew I had a homing instinct that there was something deeper than life and death, and I really started searching. Um, and so that this is what this story means, is that, that it's a heavenly messenger. It's meant to bring up that spiritual urgency. When we talk about the um, four guardian protections that I talked about the other night, the, um, first the reflecting on the virtues of the Buddha and that the worthiness, and then the 32 parts of the body, the metta, and the fourth is reflecting on death. It's considered so um, much a protection. And that um, happy side I talked about, when he does that fourth one, um, he told me that he did that practice and only that practice the last years of his life. So again, we get this idea that preliminary, but this this person, the happy side <coughs> I mean, his mind and was so developed, it's like... Um, He seemed completely free, and yet that was his practice. It wasn't. It's not preliminary at all, you know. And, and so, um, so I said, "Well, how do you do that practice?" And he said, "On the in breath, I say to myself, uh, everyone I know will die.' And then on the out breath, I say to myself, and I too will die.' And then there was a long pause, and then he said. And you know what? <laughs> I said, what? When I die, I'm not going to be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> so joyful. 
so joyful. If you can imagine doing that practice for years, and you look at what is that quality, it was a joyful interest in death. Joyful interest. He was so joyful. I remember when um, some of my deepest teachers have died in the last few years, and one of them was uh, Sayada Ulakana that I had the privilege of teaching with in Burma for over 20 years. Um, and uh, Jesse and I were teaching in uh, Massachusetts when he died, and um, Stephen Smith, uh, who started that retreat, uh, went to the funeral, uh, and he was teaching in Burma before that, uh, before he died. And when he was told uh, by Sayada Ulakana that um, he had cancer and he was close to death, you know, Steve was such uh, also very good, um, deep, deeply connected to him. <laughs> and um, so S- Steve looked so sad when uh, Sayada Ulakana told him he would die soon. He said, oh, uh, please don't worry about me, Stephen. Uh, I have total faith in my karma. I have 100% faith in my karma. And what a wonderful thing to be able to say that, right, before we die. There's a, a poet I've loved um, through my life, a contemporary being. He died recently to the Galway Canal. And he said in one of his poems, um, knowledge of the end is surely one of existence's greatest speeds. Knowledge of the end is surely one of existence's greatest feats. I mean, that we know that we're going to die. Knowledge of the end is surely one of existence's greatest feats. It's like he's, he's saying this is a great accomplishment that we know that. So there's another teacher who fortunately is still alive, uh, Ujodaka, who lives in Rangoon in Burma. And uh, I, I went to visit him a few years ago, and he looked at me and said, I want to be mindful until I die. It makes me so joyful. So simple, but so um, inspiring. And sometimes these beings that are more peaceful than peace itself, they remind me of a lighthouse. It's like, you know, that lighthouse across the river, the red and white one. It's so moving somehow, I think, for a lot of us. And a a lighthouse helps us navigate in the dark on the water, and, you know, that, that, again, that sense of a river and the flowing river of life, the journey. Uh, and these beings are so important because they can inspire us that, yes, we can do that too, that everyone can. That's very important. It's not just for some people. It's for everyone that we can do that. And first it's that sense of getting that sense of um, spiritual urgency that we something wakes us up, right? There was a, a teacher I had named Deepama from India, and uh, she was that lighthouse for me in my early years, uh, mainly because she was a householder, and the t- the teachers I had had were more a monastic. Uh, And she'd be sitting, when I was teaching with her when I was younger, she'd be sitting in the living room with her um, 
granddaughter, no, her daughter and her grandson, sorry, her daughter and grandson, her daughter translated for her. Um, and the grandson was pretty <laughs> wild. And he'd be running around and he'd be watching television and it was kind of wild. And she would go into these, um, just within seconds, total meta, total peace, just within seconds. And it was mayhem, just mayhem. And that was so inspiring for me as a householder and as a woman, because all my teachers had been male as well. And so it was just like, wow, she's a knockout. Who wouldn't want her mind, right? Like, who, who wouldn't want to be like that? It's just like totally loving, unconditional love. She didn't pick and choose. Everybody got a meta bath. You know, it was like even the, um, the person, you know, driving the um, plane. Or the person, one time, you know, bef- this was before... Uh, she had been used to more of the automated things in the West. But one time somebody took her um, out and they had to go to the bank and it was one of those um, just bank teller things that I've never gone to one. I'm so unautomated. But, you know, you can drive up and get the money out of that little thing. And she, <laughs> and she said, oh, that poor person back there. <laughs> you know, they're just stuck in there without any windows. <laughs> she just... Poor Katya, there, you know, it's just like, she to everybody, everything. It was unconditional. And one of the things that was very striking for me is that she had a um, heart attack when I was teaching with her. And uh, we brought her to this hospital uh, near where I grew up in Worcester, Massachusetts, which in those days was a really tough, Place. You know, not, uh, you wouldn't call it progressive by any shape or form. And uh, I was a little worried about bringing, you know, this little Indian lady with a white sari all, you know, and uh, anyway, um, everyone wanted to take care of her. Like, <laughs> nurses would stay late to take care of her. Doctors wanted to be with her. Everybody wanted to be in the room. Because why? Because her metta was so strong. It was so powerful to watch, like this hospital transform just from her metta. And she had just that heart. You know, that's powerful. It's like this is very um, important for us to remember how, you know, we can feel like it can get so isolated, but it affects the whole world. You know, interestingly enough, again, this was a tough place. They wouldn't let us pay because they got so much out of her being there. You know, and this was a long time ago. This was way back. It was like 1983 or something. I mean, it was a long time ago when before anybody was interested in, in any of this. So we have to know. We, we can smell the fragrance of a genuine saint. She had uprooted aversion and attachment, but she felt she still had more to do, and she knew it. It was amazing. She kept practicing. She kept practicing. I would be quite happy (laughs) if my mind was like hers, you know. I would still work, too. I have that aspiration, but boy... And then the happy side of who I really felt had completed that process, uh, one of the things that I was very touched by in being around him is that when no one was asking him questions, um, he had a chair that kind of went back. It didn't go flat, but it was like, you know, back. So he'd be like, back, but completely peaceful. But if somebody asked a question... He would be completely engaged, just like this. It wouldn't be like this. He'd be like this. So it was like amazing to watch that. Totally engaged and then completely peaceful. And, you know, no feeling that he should be engaging all the time. 
and we have that sense, right, in our lives that we have to be engaging, 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 and that it's not okay to be quiet. But how important it is to engage when it's time to engage, and it's fine to not engage when it's not been time time to engage. That that's okay. That both are important. This winter before I left for Burma, I noticed a neighbor was putting up signs in the telephone poles with a picture of her cat that was missing. Uh, And I didn't have time to talk with her and left. And when I came back, I was walking, taking a walk, uh, and I bumped into her and I asked her if they had found her cat and she hadn't. And it had been probably six weeks or longer before, uh, since I had seen the signs. Um, So um, we talked a bit, and she said, I just, I can't understand it. Uh, We loved her so much. Why would she leave us? You know, she was just like, we loved her so much. How could she leave us? And I was standing there, and I was like, oh. I said, you might not notice. It's a jungle out here. You know, thousands of feral cats around and it's like it's it's really dangerous out there if you're a dust domesticated cat I don't even think you should go out there I mean it's you know you have to know how to take care of yourself out there and even then it's rough and I said you know it's not just all lovey-dovey out there you know something probably happened to your cat or she would have wanted to come back you know it's like of course she loved you and it had never occurred to her you know, that maybe something happened to her, you know. And I know the places even in the neighborhood where the feral cats I have go, it's like they come back, <laughs> they look like they've been through, you know, the mill. I'm always just happy they're not, you know, really injured or dead. I mean, it's rough out there, you know. It's just, and we forget that this is not just about meta. It's about love and wisdom. It's the, it's the balance. And it seems like a paradox, but it isn't. We can love so much, but also understand that anything can happen. And that, that's, that's how we go from a child, from having the innocent, innocent faith to experiential faith. You go through the hard knocks. Everybody has hard knocks. It's just that's how life is, the range of pleasure, pain, neutral. So that motivation to um, cultivate both, and by cultivate, I mean access. To access, to access, to access. And this takes a lot of compassion, right? You know, that that along the journey for everyone, whether it's a squirrel or an ant or a human being, you know, that that it's understanding that we're all on that um, spiritual journey. When my dad um, was in the hospital for two months and at Mass General in Boston, um, he really had suffered a lot, like physically, just um, a lot. Uh, and at the end, um, the family got together, and we're not always at our best when we're together. It's sort of <laughs> we're not together in a way. And we're all in the room trying to figure out if this was the time to pull the plug. And it was really a serious meeting with the hospice doctor. Uh, and there's a range of, like, even kinds of faith. Like, there's the atheists, the agnostics, the fundamentalist Christians, the Buddhists. <laughs> right? There's a, this mix. And um, actually, my oldest niece and I, uh, she uh, was fundamentalist Christian. She's changed a bit since then, but we actually have the most faith. And when things are rough, we actually tend to um, 
really connect and kind of hold things. Uh, it's very, it's a very wonderful um, connection. Uh, and so, you know, it's it's the, the hospice doctors going around asking each of us what we think. And my sister just starts sobbing and sobbing, and she's like, I can't understand. Again, why did he have to suffer so much? And she was crying, and then it got really quiet, and the hospice doctor said three words. Uh, and I didn't know he was a Tibetan Buddhist, you know, at the time. But he just said three words, and he said, um, he got born. He got born? He got born. And it was so true. I mean, this is when the truth is so powerful. It was like everybody was so vulnerable and so open. And all he said was he got born and everybody relaxed and got it. Yeah. You get yourself here somehow, right? Somehow we get ourselves here. And then we have to go through the journey, however it goes. And it's so moving. It was such a, um, it was like a peak experience with my family, you know, just uh, that that moment of a collective uh, understanding and acceptance without a fight around any belief system, right, or any feeling of separation from any belief system. It was quite wonderful. So compassion, when we um, reflect on what that is, uh, the Buddha taught that the appearance of compassion um, comes from connecting with the experience of helplessness or the experience of overwhelm in the face of something. So I'm going to repeat that. It's like it's the experience of helplessness and the experience of overwhelm in the face of suffering that it's possible to find compassion if you go through that rather than resist it. So we tend to have helplessness come up or overwhelm, and what do we do? We're conditioned to think, oh no, something's wrong, right? Ooh, overwhelm. But the, the, what I'm saying is, check it out. When you have that experience of, oh no, helplessness, overwhelm, try to remember, oh, this could be my ticket. <laughs> this is a good, this is good. This is not bad. This is good. This, I could actually maybe touch into compassion here. Maybe not every time. But it's, a, and so um, what we, again, Unfortunately, we have no training in this. It's unbelievable. It should be 101 uh, preschool learning this, right? And so it's, it's, it's if I had a big, pussy, bloody mess in my hand, and somebody comes in, and they connect. They connect with it. And then they go, Oh, you poor thing! <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> you know, Ugh. you poor thing. Pity, grief, sorrow. Does that feel good? No. Is it compassion? No. But they have connected, right? But it goes into what the Buddha called the near enemy, which it's. Um, what that means is that it, it seems so much like compassion, but it isn't. It's, it's touching into the pain, but drowning in it. Right? You've connected, but you've drowned in it. Okay, another person comes in, and they've walked in the room, and they've already seen it, and they kind of pretend that they're connecting, right? And they're like, oh, wow, you've got a big sore there. I have to go. (laughs) You know, that's too bad, and they're gone, right? Does that feel good? No. No. They pretend that it's okay, and they leave. Indifference. So that's the near enemy of equanimity that the practice we did 
today with Jesse. It's like that. It's the experience where you're pretending you're accepting it, but you're not. And either one of those don't feel good when they're expressed to us. Uh, and how we learn how what this is. I'm not saying, and Jesse's not saying, that we can know what any of these are without practice. I've spent a month practicing this practice on a retreat. No one explained it to me, and I kept drowning in it because I couldn't. I didn't understand. So if if this hand is compassion, and say this is the the painful place, but this can be physical, mental, emotional, past, present, or future. If, if the awareness is trying to connect, ideally one doesn't go into it and drown, right? That, that the teaching is not to just connect and go in and drown. The teaching would be to see if you can care about it. You don't have to go in it, and you don't have to be too far back. But you, you practice it. If you have some pain in the body or pain in the mind, you practice it. Like, oh, and you see, oh, I went too far drowning, right? Of course you're going to drown because you don't know how to do it yet. This is much harder than learning to ride a bike. You know, you fall off a lot, right? Or the the tightrope. It's like, and um, the idea is that we're not perfect this idea of perfectionism so that you might learn how to do it once and then you should be able to do it all the time perfectly. It's so horrible what we do to ourselves and others. And this is practice. How you know if it's compassion is because it's pleasant. It feels good. That it actually feels good to care. And also, doesn't it feel good if somebody actually cares about your pain. They're connected, they're not drowning, they're not indifferent, and it feels wonderful to have someone express compassion for us. You feel connected with, you have a witness. It's wonderful. So to just grasp that, first of all, why haven't we been taught this well, right? Like, this is, when I first got this, my first thought was, who left this out? <laughs> you know, like, wow, you know, it's there's so much suffering. And to just not even know what it is, it's like, it's amazing. And to have some sense that um, we have this idea that we're either born with this stuff or not, right? And so, well, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm generous, but I'm not compassionate. We have all these ideas about ourselves or other people versus that actually um, these are always here and that we can call them up. And the more we know what they are, the more we can call them up. And it takes practice. And practice with something, you know, when I first started doing it, um, I was taking too big a dose. And the idea is that you try to start, just like with the metta, you try to start with an easy being, with compassion. <laughs> you try not to pick the most excruciating <laughs> memory or, like, person in pain. Try picking something a little light, but painful, so you get to practice, right? You don't pick the worst thing in the world to, like, focus on to learn compassion right away. Sometimes you don't have a choice. requires a kind of um, memory of remembering, oh, when the helplessness comes and the overwhelm, that of course that happens in the face of suffering, and that it's a good thing, not a bad thing. And then there's that choice. If there's no mindfulness and no compassion, do we force it? No. No you go to something easier so that you're not um, it's like a wise pacing it's sort of <laughs> I should tell the story but when I was young before we even had we, we didn't use seat belts or car seats and my nephew was 
really. Um, he could walk. Uh, he wasn't talking yet. Um, and I'm driving along. And he jumped out of the car. <laughs> he jumped out. And I'm like, ah! <laughs> you know, I was so upset. And then I, I turned around and I looked, and he was going, he was looking right at me, going, <laughs> yeah, right. That's how you should feel when you try to win compassion and you make it, you know, feel good about it. It's an accomplishment, you know. You just you just drove out of the car, you went in, and you didn't get run over, right? It's a, it's a big deal. And then if you do splat, if you do if you do drown in it, know that it's okay. It's like you can't do it perfectly. It's just it's just drowning in pain. You know what else is new, right? It's not like you haven't done it before. <laughs> or you numb out. That's it. That numbing out is an emotion. It's important that it's. We have to know it's okay. If someone we love is numbing out, don't try to bash them to bits so that they feel something. That's not helpful. It doesn't help anybody. It's so sad. We all go numb. We all get, you know, there's that, the equanimity again, the aversion to pain, the attachment to pleasure is, is, is the opposite of equanimity. The, the thing that, ex, that seems so much like equanimity is indifference or passivity or denial, naivete. And it's remembering that we all have this stuff. And especially, I think, with um, karmic knots. I call them karmic knots. But whatever we, you know, where we were born, what country, what town, what city, what family, what neighbors, whatever happened, however we got ourselves to that particular place and time, and whatever age, you know, we might have been oldest, youngest, whatever, et cetera, that there are some things that happen that I call karmic knots. And they're, they're, they're like something very painful. This usually, and not usually isn't just one thing. So it could, unfortunately, it's not just fear or it's not just anger or sadness. It's often a not. And uh, what we do when, in practice on a retreat, when we hit the knot, you get to see that we learned to slam the door on it. Or it wouldn't be a karmic like that's the definition and you can hear when somebody is talking about a karmic knot yourself included because you'll hear the person or yourself say I'm still feeling this this is still coming up you know, you'll hear that still and they'll be like, <laughs> it's like and you can actually recognize your friend's karmic knots right? and your family's <laughs> karmic knots and you're thinking why are they still struggling with this, right? It's like it's so obvious that there's, you know, why can't they get over it, right? And when you're thinking, why can't they get over it? It's a karmic knot. <laughs> it's a blind spot. And we have to see that we're merciless with blind spots. We're merciless. It's learned. And if you don't get that you learned it, you'll think it's your fault. It's, it's what we hide. Everyone has something they hide that they don't want the world to see about themselves. Because we're so ashamed that we're not over it yet. We're so humiliated that we're not over it yet. And all it will be is something like fear. When you distill it down, it can be fear of death. It can be grief. It, it's like you, it's universal. But we feel like if we feel it, we're going to die. And we just don't go near it. And so in terms of um, practice, 
back to the beginning of the talk, when things are going our way and everything's going along, we think we've gotten rid of it. Okay, we finally got rid of it. It's not coming up. And then we're going to get clobbered by it at some point, right? When the purification hits, of course it's going to try to come up because it wants to be free. It wants a relationship with us. We slam the door. Again, we learned it. And it takes this kind of um, two wings of the bird, the compassion, the equanimity. The compassion, the equanimity. It's learning to have compassion, but also that deep, unconditional acceptance that we're not trying to get rid of. With a karmic knot, if you manage to (laughs) open to it and try to allow it, Try to keep a relationship up with the anchor because the line between accepting it and wanting to get rid of it is very thin. And that's that's the definition of a karmic knot is that you'll think you're there because you're accepting it, but actually... (laughs) It's not how it works. A karmic knot doesn't work that way. It, it, the karmic knot works where that little like part of you that's like wanting to get rid of it slips in, you don't see it, and uh, all you're doing is reinforcing aversion by staying with it. It's so sad. You know, so it's like learning again. This is with chronic physical pain, chronic mental pain, chronic emotional pain. When you, when you have enough mindfulness, energy, etc., and you can go into it, come out, go back in, come out, go back in, do some compassion, do some equanimity, the Brahma-Vihara equanimity, where it's you're not investigating, but you're understanding that things are just as they are. Acceptance of something um, painful in the present or the past does not mean that we're agreeing with it. It doesn't mean we're condoning it. It means the fact that it happened or that it's present. That's very different. And we tend to think if we allow it, these very painful places, even in the world, starvation, how do we we even remotely accept that? Because it's happening. It's actually happening. And if you, if you um, drown in, in pity or you um, numb out, it doesn't help. But if you can accept it because it's a fact, then you can do something about it. You can engage it skillfully. Uh, and so this, this is the key that in terms of wise pacing, um, I believe that our karmic knots are our teachers this lifetime. Because they're in charge. <laughs> they really are in charge. And you have to, anatta, anicca, dukkha anatta. It's like there's just a deep respect for that, how uh, that part of you has protected you so much. And it's not gonna, um, it's not gonna open up unless you truly want a relationship. No trust. If aversion is motivating the connection or attachment, they just they won't budge. And how wonderful that they won't budge, because they're not fooled. They're not. Karmic knots are not fooled by fake motivation. They're only gonna respond to you being interested. And this is how you get a relationship with yourself. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> Trust. And that, that happens gradually, slowly. Um, but we can do it. We can all do it. It's understanding um, it just takes uh, a certain kind of patience. Srinazargadatta Maharaj, in the book I Met, he says, um, be patient with yourself because you are your only obstacle. 
pretty good. So another way to say what I've just been trying to say is um, if your system breaks, steps on the brake, which is the resistance, let it break. Learn to trust it. That does not mean anything other than you let the resistance be there because it's predominant. And this is part of really wise pacing is actually following the purity of the flow of life. So that if your system says no, (laughs) you say, oh, resistance. And you try to feel in the body how the resistance feels. You note resistance or no. And then you might go to something neutral, hearing, resistance, hearing, resistance. You let it be okay. I can assure you that that's how your system learns to trust you. Because if you trust that, then it's going to want to step on the gas again. Or it will step on the clutch. More and more, your system knows that if there's mindfulness or some metta or um, there's some calm or whatever these, again, those qualities that I said that we could call purity, when they're present, your system will open up naturally. It's yes, you know, it's the yes, <laughs> yes, uh, and then it's no. It's just like a two-year-old. No, we're just like, we're, we're like, if you listen to the mind, this is part of a retreat, is that it becomes uncensored, and you start listening again. You listen to your system. It always knows better than we do because if we're motivated by aversion and attachment, we cause harm, and then there's less trust. It's a very foolproof process. This spring I was... um, leaving Vancouver to go to Massachusetts. Uh, I was teaching in Canada and then Massachusetts. Um, and sometimes planes leave very early in the morning. You know, and it was so early. Uh, it was, and uh, so we're all in line waiting to um, go through um, security and then uh, immigration. Very long lines. And that particular morning, you know the people who have the special, you know, they have their special passes? Well, hardly anybody was doing that. So um, all of a sudden, this, like, perfect-looking couple with this perfect-looking kid in the stroller came by. And we were all kind of tired. We hadn't had our coffee yet. (laughs) We were all tired and grumpy in this perfect-looking, just they looked you know, like a movie, you know, and they, they came through, and you could just feel everybody crying. Oh, you know, we wanted to all be, you know, breezing through, looking. Their hair was perfect. <laughs> it was like 4.30 in the morning. How, you know, we were all like, oh, you know, we all look terrible, right? It was so funny. And we were all looking at each other laughing, because it's one of those moments, right? Fun of being human. So they breeze through, we all forget about it, you know, we're going along, and uh, we're all on the plane. And the plane is late, like we're not leaving. And um, they're waiting, <laughs> waiting, and we miss our, you know, even time that we're supposed to depart. And then you hear all this commotion up front, you know, they open the door again. Guess who's coming through? Guess who looks terrible? <laughs> their hair looks terrible their clothes look terrible and the poor little kid in, in the stroller oh my god his tears were going down and his face looked dirty and, you know and they're trying to push him through and um, <laughs> this stewardess squats down because this kid they all look miserable and this, um, <laughs> this stewardess squats down and she said oh honey what happened? And he said, he's really little, you know, and he said, my dad says I make very bad decisions. (laughs) 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 (laughs)
put her clothes in the bathroom because she's like, she can't contain the howls of laughter. And we're all like taking turns. We're going down. <laughs> I mean, the plane just went into an uproar of like laughter because it was so funny, you know, and it's like, wow, my dad says I make bad decisions. And of course, we're trying to figure out, well, what did he do? <laughs> it was really bad. That was two hours ago. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we have to actually look at this, you know, how do we relate to making mistakes? Right? It's like, are we here to learn and forgive mistakes? Or are we here to judge? And it's like, the more we judge, the less we can learn. And, and especially learning spiritually, it's like most of us did not get the support to get that we're here to learn spiritually and that it, it's very possible. Uh, and so I think it's... Um, once you start to grasp this washing machine uh, metaphor, you know, that, that there's a, a being washed to the... Um, through the whirling rapids, we get washed to the base of our heart. Uh, that we go through that again and again and again. And you stop taking it personally. And the more you stop taking it personally, the more you can learn. And, and the, 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 the compassion for us all just grows. Because no one's born perfect. It's like it just doesn't happen. And we wouldn't be born human. It's the nature of the uh, species. <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> Um, a song uh, from a woman named Uvavnuk from the Hudson Bay area from some time ago. So it's not whirling rapids, but it's uh, more of a water imagery. The great sea has set me in motion, set me adrift, and I move as a weed in the river. The arch of sky and mightiness of storms encompass me, and I am left trembling with joy.
so it's time for walking and then the meditation.